0: Alright, so this is chapter 65 from the ACSM book on soft tissue injuries of the leg, ankle, and foot. So we just talked about ankle instability. Let's talk about soft tissue injuries now. So, as the number of participants in rec and competitive activities increase, soft tissue injuries to lower extremities are encountered more frequently by the primary care provider. And if untreated, they could lead to worsening quality of life. So first, soft tissue injuries of the leg leg extends from the knee to the ankle. And some of these issues affecting this portion of the extremity include exertional compartment syndrome, posterior tibial tendon injury, and perineal tendon injury. So Let's talk about exertional compartment syndrome. Chronic exertional compartment syndrome is activity-related pain caused by an increased intramuscular pressure within an anatomic compartment. In the leg, there are four compartments that contain muscle, blood vessels, and nerves. And the compartments are enclosed by fascia, which limit muscular expansion during activity and can cause compression of the contents of the compartment. As the pressure within the compartment approaches the mean arterial pressure, blood flow through the microvasculature is diminished and ischemia ensues. Knowledge of anatomy of the lower leg is vital to diagnosis. Anterior compartment. So remember, anterior compartment, most common. This has extensor hallucis longus, extensor digitorum longus, peroneus tertius, and tibios anterior, as well as the deep peroneal nerve, deep peroneal nerve being more functional. The lateral compartment contains peroneus or fibularis longus and brevis, as well as superficial uh, fibular nerve or superficial peroneal nerve, and again, that is mostly sensation. The superficial posterior compartment contains gastroconsoleus and the sural nerve. And then the deep posterior compartment contains flexor halysis longus, flexor digitorum longus, and posterior tibialis muscle, as well as the posterior tibial nerve. Patient's usually asymptomatic upon initiating exercises, but pain begins at a predictable time during the workout. It's described as aching or cramping with feelings of swelling, fullness, or tightness. Dysesthesias often accompany pain along the nerve within the affected compartment, and they may complain of altered running style, um, such as foot slapping the ground, pain comes on, foot drop because of that deep perineal nerve. On physical exam, at rest, it's often normal. In advanced cases, there may be tenors deep palpation along the affected compartment or a palpable fascial defect with hernia within the affected compartment. Exam immediately after exercise has a firm, tender compartment with increased pain on passive stretch of the muscles within the compartment, and fascial defects with resultant herniations are more identifiable at this time. Several techniques have been described for measuring pressures, needle manometry, wick catheter, and slit catheter. Preferred method is with battery-operated handheld digital fluid pressure monitor. Striker intracompartmental pressure monitor is convenient and easy to use. Department Pressure should be taken before exercise, one one minute after, and then five minutes after exercise. One or more of the following pressure criteria must be met, in addition to history and physical, consistent for CECS. Pre-exercise should be greater than 15 millimeters of mercury. One-minute post is greater than 30. Five-minute post greater than 20. And again, that's with the Pedowitz criteria. Treatment. Non-op care usually consists of activity modification to levels below symptomatic threshold, ice, NSAIDs, and massage. Patients should be counseled that return to previous level activity is likely to cause recurrence. Fasciotomy is the surgical treatment of exertional Compartment Syndrome. In this, fascia is divided longitudinally over the entire length of the involved compartment. Indications for this include history of KEX, um, diagnostic testing, as well as presence of fascial defect. New research now indicates that considering Botox for treatment may be efficacious as well as gait retraining and PT. So posterior tibial tendon injury is the next section. Injury to the posterior tibial tendon may occur acutely as a component of chronic overuse syndrome. Posterior tibial tendon helps invert and plantar flex foot and has an important role in maintaining longitudinal arch. Patients with posterior tibial tendon injury often have pain along the medial aspect of the leg posterior to the medial malleolus, hence where it passes. Onset of symptoms usually gradual, with increases in activities like walking, running, or jumping. On exam may be loss of the longitudinal arch and clinical planovagus deformity. When observing the patient from behind, affected side will reveal more toes lateral to the heel than the unaffected side. Too many toes sign. With an attempted single leg Heel raise, loss of foot supination, and heel inversion. In the later stages of posterior tibial dysfunction, patients cannot perform a single leg heel rise. In earlier stages of dysfunction, patients will perform the single leg heel rise in a slow, deliberated fashion with associated pain. There's tenderness and fullness along the course of the tendon, and pain and weakness present with resisted inversion. So radiographically, x ray should include standing AP and lateral views. AP may show medial tailor displacement in relation to the navicular, best seen with uncovering of the tailor head. Lateral X-ray may reveal decreased height of the longitudinal arch and increased overlap of the metatarsals. MRIs test of choice, however, for the posterior tibial tendon and conclude heterogeneous signal along the course of the tendon and possible increase in size. Initial treatment is non-op with period of immobilization with use of a short leg walking boot or short leg walking cast. Though if that's going to be the case, you got to do that slow or for a short amount of time and then improve range of motion thereafter. Once immobilization is complete, orthotics should be used to support the arch and relieve stress on the tendon by posting the heel in a neutral position. Steroid injection is not recommended because of risk of tendon rupture. could consider Prolo. Surgery should be considered in those who do not respond to non-op management after three to six months. Patients with loss of the arch or patients with midfoot foot arthritis. Um, surgical options include synovectomy, debridement, flexor digitorum, longus transfer, or calcaneal osteotomy. Perineal tendon injury is the next section. Perineal tendon pathology commonly missed source of chronic lateral-sided ankle pain. Spectrum of peroneal tendon injury includes tenosynovitis, tendon tear, and peroneal tendon instability. The peroneus longus originates from the proximal aspect of the lateral fib. Its tendinous portion runs posterior to the lateral mal before inserting primarily onto the plantar proximal surface of the first metatarsal. Function is primarily eversion and plantar flexion of the foot. The peroneus brevis originates from the lateral fibula, and its is portion courses anterior and medial to the peroneus longus at the level of the ankle and inserts on the base of the 5th metatarsal. Its primary function is also to evert the foot. So again, longus, brevis, brevis, 5th metatarsal, eversion. Longus function is eversion and plantar flexion because it goes and inserts plantar proximal surface of the 1st metatarsal. So all the way across. Patient often complains of lateral ankle pain posterior to the lateral malleolus. History of pain, popping, transient swelling also can occur, especially after an e- inversion injury. On an exam, they may have pain and swelling over the course of the tendons, posterior to the lateral mal. patient may also have pain with resisted eversion of the ankle, passive inversion of the ankle, or resisted plantar flexion of the first metatarsal. Cases of perineal instability, tendon subluxation or dislocation may be elicited with resisted eversion and dorsiflexion of the ankle. Standard x-rays should include AP, mortise, and lateral x-rays. Ultrasound can help to show heterogeneity in the tendon as well as subluxation. An MRI may also be helpful to show increased or heterogeneous signal in, within the substance of the tendon. Circumferential fluid within the tendon sheath greater than three millimeters suggests tenosynovitis. Initial treatment of tenosynovitis here is rest, ice, SIDs. Ankle brace or a lateral heel wedge may also help alleviate symptoms. Severe cases can put in a short leg cast or CAM. And then cases of perineal tendon instability, non-op, is associated with high rate of failure. Steroid injections further are not recommended because of risk of tendon rupture. So I wonder if you can get in the sheath. Operative intervention is indicated if they persist. And surgery includes exploration, synovectomy, primary tendon repair, tenodesis, or retinacular repair. So, now let's talk about soft tissue injuries of the hind foot and midfoot. Hind foot consists of talus and calcaneus and articulations. Midfoot is navicular, cuboid, and three cuneiform bones and their articulations. Foot function hinges on stability provided by osseous anatomy and overlying soft tissue. Some of the more frequently encountered soft tissue pathologies include os trigonum, jogger's foot, tarsal tunnel, plantar heel pain, and posterior heel pain. So painful os trigonum. The os trigonum is an ossicle in 7 to 11% of population as a continuation of the posterior tailor process. Painful os trigonum syndrome, one cause of posterior medial ankle pain. This is most prevalent in athletes who perform frequent or forced plantar flexion and may be misdiagnosed such as Achilles tendinopathy. Presentations commonly pain in posterior medial ankle may be worsened with plantar flexion activities on point position in ballet. So again, very similar to Achilles. On exam may be tenderness palpation over the os or posterior medial ankle. Passive dorsiflexion and plantar flexion of the great toe may also elicit pain due to close anatomic relationship of flexor hallucis longus tendon and trigonal process. Standard x-rays should include weight bearing AP and oblique and lateral views of the foot. Os trigona may be appreciated on the lateral view. MRI will find fluid between the trigonum and the lateral tailor process. An MRI may also demonstrate associated flexor house as long as Again, initial treatment, non-op, starts with brief, like four to six weeks, immobilization, short leg cast, or CAM boot, probably just do four. NSAIDs, activity modification, and then surgical excision may be required with failure of non-op management. Next, let's talk about compression neuropathy or jogger's foot, which is entrapment of the medial plantar nerve distal to the tarsal tunnel. Medial plantar nerve co- courses plantarward after it exits the tarsal tunnel, or may be compressed by osteophytes from the talonavicular joint or fibrotic masternaut of Henry. So, again, compressed by osteophytes at the talonavicular joint or a fibrotic masternaut of Henry. Patients have pain, numbness, or the medial sole of the foot, and medial toes, increases with physical activity. An exam may be tenderness to palpation along the medial aspect of the longitudinal arch. Numbness and tingling also can be recreated with a Tinel test over this area. Initial treatment is non-op, rest, NSAIDs, or soft orth- orthoses. Patients with a plano valgus or flat foot may benefit from a UCBL orthosis. Injection of steroid with local anesthetic can be diagnostic and therapeutic, and surgical release of that plantar nerve may be indicated if failed not op Next, tarsal tunnel syndrome. Tarsal tunnel syndrome is most common compression neuropathy of the foot and ankle. Etiology is entrapment of the posterior tibial nerve in the tarsal tunnel or one of its terminal branches after leaving the tarsal tunnel. Tarsal tunnel may be post-traumatic, idiopathic or result of space-occupying lesion or accessory muscle. Tarsal tunnel is a fibroosseous tunnel, and the osseous boundaries are the medial surface of the talus, medial surface of the os calcis, the sustentaculum tali, and inferomedial navicular. The fibrous portion of the canal consists of the flexor retinaculum as the roof and the abductor hallucis with its investing fascia. Patients often complain of burning, tingling, or numbness on the plantar aspect of the foot and may have night pain or discomfort with even light bed covers. On exam, they can find a positive Tinel's at the tarsal tunnel or reproduction with compression for 60 seconds. Other causes of peripheral neuropathy should be considered, like diabetes, hypothyroid, alcoholism, iron deficiency, etc. EMG, helpful in differentiating tarsal tunnel from peripheral neuropathy or lumbosacral radiculopathy. For treatment, start off conservatively. Avoidance of aggravating activities, control of edema um, if present, medications, compressive stockings as indicated. Arch supports or medial heel wedges may help symptoms. NSAID or injection of steroids in the tarsal tunnels often of benefit to those with tenosynovitis. Surgical management, including complete release of the tibial nerve and all its branches, have been shown to, be, to result in improved outcome measures after failure of conservative management. Next, let's talk about plantar fasciitis. Insertional plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of plantar heel pain. Repetitive or acute trauma leads to micro tears at the calcaneal insertion of plantar fasciitis. And the patient often describes pain as worse with the first step in the morning. A variation of insertional plantar fasciitis is a posterior forchette tear, PF tear. In this condition, plantar fascia is acutely torn. An infrequent but unique cause of plantar heel pain that can be confused with this is fat pad insufficiency. It is often seen in older adults or in patients after multiple steroid injections to the heel. Other causes of heel pain should be excluded prior to making diagnosis of fat pad atrophy, and treatment consists of a viscoelastic heel cup with well-cushioned shoes. On exam, patients with insertional plantar fasciitis have pain localized plantar medial heel. Pain often worse with the first few steps in the morning or after rest. And then in a PF tear, palpable defect of the plantar fascia may be appreciated. Loss of arch height may be appreciated in cases of complete tear. On x-ray, uh, you need standing AP lateral and oblique radiographs. And often find a heel spur in 50% of patients with insertional, 15% of asymptomatic. Bone scan can help differentiate from calcaneal stress fracture or MRI. Primary treatment is non-operative with Achilles stretching or activity modification. Hand massage, ice massage, or anti-inflammatories may be helpful and cushioned heel cups are often prescribed. Now remember, plantar fascia, that's insertional versus mid-substance, varies in its treatment. Insertional, you generally need to go with elevation, let the heel go down, to past neutral. I think... Check that. Primary treatment of plantar fasciitis non-op injection with steroids can be considered. Um, could consider prolotherapy for this as well. Ninety-five percent will have resolution within 12 to 18 months. For the five percent who do not improve, surgical release can be considered, but generally, patients should be counseled that recovery can be prolonged and that exercises to maintain Achilles length must be continued. Next, let's talk about the insertional Achilles tendinitis. Oh, because that was plantar fascia. Okay, we what I was saying. That's plantar fascia. Now we're on insertional Achilles tendinopathy. Most common site of posterior heel pain in the area of the insertion of the Achilles tendon. Factors that predispose are hypovascular nature of the distal Achilles, repetitive forces seen at the bone tendon interface, and prominence of area becoming irritated with shoe wear insertional achilles tendinopathy is common in jumping athletes can be caused by poorly fitting shoes patients with this can complain of pain at the distal portion of the achilles and note weakness with plantar flexion on exam there's a tenderness to palpation directly over the insertion of the achilles and those with this may experience pain with resisted plantar flexion initial treatments can serve with NSAIDs achilles stretching activity modification can do a heel cup steroid injections have been associated with tendon rupture and are discouraged. However, prolotherapy is good. Surgery can be considered after six-month trial or non-op care. And those usually include tendon debridement and flexor house as long as tendon transfer. So remember the big differences between insertional versus mid-substance is how they are treated with the eccentric stretching and strengthening, insertional going past neutral, and mid-substance going down just to the floor. Retrocalcaneal bursitis. The retrocalcaneal bursa is a synovial-lined bursa. You know what? I think insertional actually is only supposed to go to the floor, and the mid-substance can go below. Retrocalcaneal bursitis. Retrocalcaneal bursa is a synovial-lined bursa between the posterior calcaneus and the Achilles tendon. Patients with this frequently present with posterior heel pain and direct tenderness over the posterior heel. Frequently, they have an associated pathologic prominence of the posterior superior aspect of the calcaneal tuberosity, and this is commonly referred to as Hagland's deformity, often associated with a rigid shoe wear. On exam, generally tenderness palpation just proximal to the insertion of the Achilles. The patient may also demonstrate weakness with plantar flexion of the ankle associated hagland deformity may have visible prominence at the insertion. Get standard x-rays, three view, and then if ha- Hagland deformity present, prominence of the posterior superior portion of the calcineal tuberosity seen on lateral view. Initial treatments non-op with rest, ice, heel cord stretches, shoe modification, and then if failed, bursectomy or surgical excision of hagland deformity can be required. All right, now let's talk about soft tissue injuries of the forefoot which is metatarsal, phalanges, and their articulations. Injury here uh, is common in both recreation and competitive athletes. During ambulation, contact forces are equally distributed among second through fifth metatarsal heads and two sesamoids. Because of the higher loads distributed across the first metatarsal phalangeal joint and weight-bearing activities, great toe is commonly injured. Let's talk about that. Hallux rigidus. Hallux rigidus is a common. Seeing about 1 in 45 individuals over age 50 has limitation of motion of the first MTP, particularly in dorsiflexion. Patients have limitation of motion and pain at the MTP with ambulation or athletics. Hallux rigidus has been attributed to many causes, including trauma, inflammatory metabolic conditions, and congenital disorders. Patients with this will have pain with both active and passive motion of the first MTP joint, so range of motion causes pain. Occasionally palpable dorsal exostosis may also be present over the dorsal aspect of the joint. Cases with large exostosis may demonstrate irritation of the overlying skin from improperly fitting shoe wear. Weight-bearing AP, oblique, lateral x-rays during eval of hallux rigidus may demonstrate narrowing of the first MTP joint as well as a dorsal osteophyte. Initial treatments non-op with NSAIDs, avoidance of high-impact activities, Steel or fiberglass shank in the sole of the shoe can relieve symptoms by limiting dorsiflexion. Rocker bottom shoes and custom insoles can have a similar effect. Failure of non-op, indication for surgery, which usually is a kalectomy, arthrodesis, or Keller arthroplasty. Next, hallux valgus, or a bunion deformity. This is common in general population, athletes as well. Hallux valgus in athletes demands different considerations in treatment than generally. Oxvalgus occurs with lateral deviation of the great toe and progressive subluxation of the first MTP joint. Medial eminence of the first MTP joint becomes prominent, and the overlying soft tissue becomes irritated, swollen, and inflamed, creating the bunion. Several intrinsic and extrinsic factors can contribute to this. Most important is constricting footwear. Shoes with heels and a narrow toe box have been associated with bunions. Athletics that increase the lateral stress on the first MTP joint can be another extrinsic cause. Intrinsic factors include pronated foot, contracted heel cord, hypermobility of the first metatarsocuneiform joint, and metatarsus primus varus. Injury to the first MTP joint, such as turf toe or first MTP dislocation, can weaken that capsule of the joint and the collateral ligament, predisposing to hallux valgus. Patients typically present complaining of pain over the medial eminence and irritation with shoe wear. The skin and bursa over the medial eminence may be irritated. On exam, patient's feet should be examined sitting and standing. Standing may accentuate the deformity, and range of motion at the first MTP should be noted, as well as any hypermobility of the cuneiform joint. Foot should be examined for pes planus and pronation. X-rays or AP lateral and sesamoid views with patient standing. Angle formed by the proximal phalanx and first metatarsal or Hallux valgus angle is measured. And a normal Hallux valgus angle is less than 15 degrees. If it's between 15 and 20, it's mild. Moderate deformity is an angle 20 to 40. An angle greater than 40 degrees is severe deformity. Other X-rays. Measured include the intermetatarsal angle between the shafts of the first and second metatarsal and distal metatarsal articular angle, which is a measurement of joint congruity. The treatment for such initially is non-op. Shoe wear modification, irritation of the medial eminence may be relieved with a wider toe box, shoe stretching, or pads around the bunion. Patients with pes planus may benefit from an orthosis, and a contracture of the Achilles, if present, should be treated appropriately they have persistent pain after non-op, this is an indication for surgery, which can result in post-op restriction of MTP motion, which should be considered by athletes requiring a great range of MTP motion, such as dancers and sprinters. Now let's talk about turf toe, which is an injury to the first metatarsophalangeal joint. This is third in collegiate athletes after knee and ankle injuries. Turf toe is an acute injury to the plantar MTP capsular ligamentous structures of the great toe. Most common mechanism is when an axial load is delivered to the heel with the ankle plantar flexed and the great toe in dorsiflexion. So, really lo- localizes all the force right on that area. Turf toe has three grades. Grade one plantar tissues intact, symptoms minimal. Grade 2, partial tear of the capsule, have pain, swelling, bruising, restricted motion, and they're unable to perform at their usual level. Grade 3 are complete tears, and they, there may have been an occult MTP dislocation that spontaneously reduced. On an exam, there may be swelling or ecchymosis about the MTP joint, the patient may also demonstrate pain with passive motion and tenderness to palpation. In more severe injuries, there can be instability of the MTP joint. X-rays of the affected foot can reveal proximal migration of the sesamoids on the AP view or a lag in sesamoid tracking on the lateral view. X-rays of the uninjured foot can be helpful for comparative purposes. and MRI may reveal increased uptake or frank disruption of the plantar ligamentous structures. Treatment's generally conservative, with rest, ice, elevation, possibly anti-inflammatory drugs. Buddy taping, rigid orthoses to limit MTP motion can also provide symptomatic relief. Operative treatment can be indicated in patients with symptoms refractory to conservative management. Turf toe can predispose to OA of the first MTP hallux rigidus. Last, let's talk about metatarsalgia. There's a descriptive term for pain beneath the metatarsal heads may have a number of etiologies, including stress fractures, synovitis, or neuroma. Forefoot pain has been associated with tightness of the gastroxoleus complex, and those with forefoot or midfoot symptoms have less dorsiflexion on average than asymptomatic controls. Synovitis of the MTP joint commonly affects the second metatarsal, and it occurs frequently in middle-aged athletes. Symptoms typically include forefoot-exacerbated, Pain in the forefoot, exacerbated by running, walking, or forced dorsiflexion of the MTP joint. An interdigital neuroma or Morton neuroma is a common cause of forefoot pain. Classically, presents as neurogenic pain in the ball of the foot between third and fourth toes, thought to be caused by irritation of the interdigital nerve as it passes beneath the deep transverse metatarsal ligament. And this occurs in all populations, most frequently runners and dancers. On exam, can be swelling dorsally or tenderness to palpation of the MTP joint in cases of MTP synovitis. In cases of interdigital neuroma, palpation of the inner space while compressing the forefoot by pressing on the first and fifth metatarsal heads may reproduce the pain. X-rays should be done weight-bearing to rule out joint degeneration and metatarsal stress fracture, If suspicious MRI. In cases of MTP joint synovitis, demonstrate joint space widening. Treatment is conservative with activity modification, insoles, NSAIDs. In cases of interdigital neuroma, avoiding heels or shoes with narrow toe boxes can decrease extrinsic compression of the nerve. Where shoe modification has failed, injection of steroid with local anesthetic can give lasting or permanent relief and be helpful for diagnostic. In cases of MTP synovitis, surgical management may be necessary. With failure of conservative treatment and development of deformity, excision of the neuroma has demonstrated good pain relief in 80% of patients. And that is the end of that chapter.